We're going to begin or continue rather our series on Amazing Grace. Tonight's lesson entitled No Grace, No Gospel. If you haven't got grace, you haven't got the gospel. Best way to find out if you're preaching the gospel is examine your message and see if there's grace there because if you haven't got grace, you haven't got the gospel. Well, you know, in order to explain what something is, sometimes you have to begin by describing what it isn't. So I'm going to start tonight talking about what grace is not. Some images, some popular images that people have put forth to try to describe grace, which have been incorrect. So let's begin with what grace is not. First of all, grace is not a dividing line. A dividing line. Some people think that grace is a kind of a point or a line you know, that, dis, that, that divides being safe from being lost. If you're on this side, you're safe. If you're on that side, you're lost. You know, if I'm on this side of the line, I'm under grace because grace starts at the line. You know, and if I'm on the other side, I'm out of grace. And a lot of people use this imagery to explain the meaning of 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. So I encourage you to go to 1 John and I'll read verses 5 to 10. John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so from verse five to seven, some people say, well, then that's walking in the light. That's being on the grace side. And then verse eight to 10, if we follow this idea, then when we sin, we're on the wrong side of the line and we need to confess our sin to get back on the right side of the line. You see what I'm saying? See the problem here? Do you see it? See, the problem with this idea is that we worry about being on the wrong side when death comes. What if I slip over to the wrong side and then I die? Oh man, I'm on the wrong side. Trouble. The problem with this imagery is when we begin to see how weak we are and how easily we sin, it's easy to see how we could slip onto the wrong side even for a moment when we die. So we worry. We're always worried. Man, I can't slip over to the wrong side. You know, I want to be on the right side. We would worry less if we realize that John here is talking about hypocrisy and how God will judge hypocrisy. Not about lines. In verse 5 to 7 he says, if you profess to be a Christian, your life, that's walking in the light, you know, the walking part, Bible, when they talk about walking, they're talking about your life, your lifestyle. If you profess to be a Christian, then your life will be evidence of this. And the sins you commit while you are in fellowship with God will be forgiven you. Verse 7b. Notice the two situations are simultaneous. While you are walking in the light, God forgives you your sins. Whoa, wait a minute. 
Walking in the light is not being sinless. This expression refers to a relationship. Walking, that's your lifestyle. The light, that's an awareness. You know, Walking in the light is the conscious relationship we have with God through our union with Jesus Christ expressed primarily in repentance and baptism and then of course in fidelity. It is the ongoing awareness that because we are sinners we need Christ as our Savior. That's walking in the light. You know, when you say, oh, the light, the little light just went on, click, you know, oh, I get it, the light, you know, walking in the light. You're walking in the light when you realize you're a sinner. (laughs) That's walking in the light. You're a sinner and you need Christ to wash away your sins. Not every second Tuesday. Not when you kind of, whoops, I slipped into the wrong side. Not that. You need Christ to wash away your sins every waking moment of your life. That's why he says that to deny that we are sinners and consequently have any need for Christ makes us fools and liars. John reminds us that we are sinners and always will be sinners while we are in this flesh. But so long as we are aware of this, so long as we acknowledge this truth and we trust in God for our ongoing mercy, we will be saved. We are walking in the light. Walking in the light doesn't mean we're sinless. It means we're enlightened about our sinfulness and we know how we are being saved, not through our efforts, through the effort of Christ. So there's one, this misconception, grace is some kind of line. Another misconception is that grace is some kind of thermometer. Grace is a thermometer. Just how that works. I don't know where this idea comes from, but it goes like this. In the process of salvation, you supply so much. You know, let's say the thermometer goes up to 100. You, know, you supply you know, 20% or 30%, whatever that is. And grace is the part that God provides to get you up to 100, you know, to top it off so you can make it. You know, 100 is salvation. Okay? This imagery is based on the false premise that there is actually something we can supply in exchange for salvation And God, in His grace, supplies the rest. Like we give something and He gives the rest and that makes up for our sins. We think that's grace. But I'll tell you something, brothers. When it comes to salvation, we don't provide anything. Our role is to accept forgiveness through faith expressed in repentance and baptism. We do not exchange repentance and baptism for salvation. We do not make restitution for our sins by exchanging repentance and baptism to make up for our sins. That's merely the way we express our faith in a biblical manner. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, shall we? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, a very interesting verse. Paul says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now watch. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and 
redemption. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ on our behalf becomes all that we need in order to be right with God. And we become right with God through our association with Jesus Christ. And what happens at baptism, for example, is that our association with Christ begins and so also our advantages because of it. What is the advantage that I gain because I am associated with, linked to, in, whatever preposition you want to use there. You know, what's, what's the advantage of being associated to Christ? Well, I gain all the things that He has gained for me. Eternal life, sanctification, perfection, holiness, acceptability with God. Jesus has all of this. And in my association with Him, I come into all of those benefits. That's what Paul is explaining to us here in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Peter this time. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. Peter says the same thing actually in a different way. He says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. You see what happens is we confuse repentance with restitution. The restitutionary part, meaning the payment part, the restitutionary element in our salvation was made by Jesus Christ. That's why I say we don't give anything towards our salvation. We don't make any of the restitution part for our salvation. Jesus has made 100% of the restitution necessary to save our souls. We contribute nothing towards it. Whatever way we sin, either before becoming a Christian or after Jesus, makes restitution to God or after. I said I put the accent in the wrong place. Let me say that again. Whatever sins that we make, whether it is before we become Christians or after, comma, Jesus makes restitution for those sins on His cross. Now some people actually think that after baptism we make restitution for our sins. That's that's incorrect. We may have to make restitution to the government. If we steal, we go to jail. If we cheat on our income tax, we'll get a a, a fine. We may have to make restitution to earthly institutions. We may have to make restitution to a friend if we had an argument and we said something nasty or whatever and we have to make an apology to the friend or to a spouse, but we don't make restitution to God. You know, going to jail for stealing may make restitution to society for stealing, but our jail term counts for nothing as payment to God for our moral debt because of the sin of stealing. You see the difference? Only Christ can make moral restitution to God for our sins, and He has done that through the cross. Repentance. You know, I've talked about restitution. Repentance is a change of attitude about sin. It is a change of attitude about how we will conduct ourselves in the future. It is a change of attitude about uh, who and what we believe, but it is not restitution. 
Now there's a restitution element in repentance. You know? But repentance isn't the thing that pays for our sins. The cross is what pays for our sins. So on that thermometer scale there, Jesus supplies all of what we need to be saved. He makes 100% of the restitution necessary with God to save our souls. So you stole something in the past. He makes restitution. You got an abortion. He makes restitution. You failed at marriage. He makes restitution. You abandoned the church. And then you've returned to the church. He makes restitution. Brothers and sisters, this is the good part about the good news. (laughs) Don't ask, why aren't people responding to the gospel when we preach? Maybe we're not preaching the good news. I want to tell you, when I heard this news about all the junk that I did, Most of it I couldn't take back, fix, repair, apologize for. When somebody finally explained to me, yeah, you you can't change. But it's okay. Jesus has paid, has made the restitution for you, Mike. I don't know about you, but man, that was the best news I ever heard in my life. And like Peter, in many ways, when I realized that Christianity would require of me certain things in my new life that I had to do away with that were in my old life, as much as my flesh didn't want to let go all those things in my old life, like Peter, I found myself saying, but where am I going to go? What choice do I have? You have the words of life. Lord, you made restitution for me. Who else has done that for me? No one. Only only him. One more, okay, um, image. Grace is not a free ticket. Some people think that grace is some kind of special privilege to sin without consequences. As if God is our buddy and he allows us to enjoy ourselves in sin and and have a kind of a lower standard of morality or ethics because we're his children and he, like many earthly fathers, indulges us our weaknesses. You know, oh, boys will be boys, you know. Uh, Maybe your dad was like that, but the father's not. The father's not like that. Let's go to Romans, shall we? Chapter 6, verse 1. What does Paul say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul argues against a form of this kind of thinking where some people believe that if grace always increases to cover sin, then people shouldn't worry about increasing sin because greater sin only produced more grace. You know, it's all good, they were saying. It's all good. And then in verse 2 he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it. So Paul argues that those who enjoy grace do so because they've died to sin, not because they live for sin. And then we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 16. 
Peter says, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And you know, we like to preach that. We like to, yeah, you should be holy for I am holy. And we're holy people, but you know, sometimes holiness demands something of us that we don't want to give. And it's not just always about sex. It's about our attitude. It's about our generosity. It's about our our violent natures. It's about our selfishness. It's about our self-centeredness. It's about our impatience. Holiness is about those things too. God calls us to be holy like He is holy. And I come back to what I've said before. Sometimes the demands of holiness brings us to our knees and we end up saying, Lord, I must be holy as as much as my flesh fights against it because where else will I go? Who else has made restitution for me? Peter reminds Christians that God has expectations of his people and their conduct and grace is what motivates and produces this conduct. I had an old girlfriend many, many years ago, long before I was married, and I happened to meet her because my wife frowns on my dating. But anyways. You ever, you ever meet an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend that you know, someone you dated or went out with you know, before you were married obviously and then you, know, you bump into them somewhere, you meet them somewhere again and they, they kind of see you in your, you know, your new life and I met this person after I had been married. Lisa and I had been married several years you know. and I had become a Christian. You know, I was not a Christian when, when we went out. And she gave me a compliment, but she didn't know she gave me a compliment. She says, you're different. I go, yeah. You're not as cool as you used to be. (laughs) Now my male ego was not happy to hear that. But my spirit in Christ was. What she said was, you're not as worldly as you used to be. Yeah, I wasn't. I had to shed that cool person in order to be making the effort to be that holy person. It's amazing the things that you will do. It's amazing the things that you will shed. It's amazing the things that you will try to put away in order to be holy, in order to please God. And the motivation for that desire is the grace that we've received from God. Again, He's the one that made restitution, His grace. All right, so let's, let's, let's talk about grace. Let's look at the word and its meaning very quickly, a definition, and then maybe examine one or two examples to see grace in action, and then the lesson be yours. A word meaning in the Old Testament In the Old Testament, every instance where the word grace is used, it comes from a root word that means to bend, to bend down or to stoop down. The application of this word is the bending down in kindness as the motivation to someone or something that is inferior 
that results in blessings for that inferior being or that inferior thing. For example, in Genesis 6, 8, it says, Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord looked down, bent down, stooped down to give grace to Noah. In Psalm 84, 11, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. Always the superior giving grace to the inferior. In the New Testament, the word translated as grace begins at a a different place, but it ends up meaning the same thing. The root word in the New Testament in the Greek means a, a, a cheerful attitude, having a cheerful attitude. The application of the word is to express kindness, you know, a happy heart expressing itself in kindness and favors and blessings. For example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, uh, it says of Jesus, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace, the favor of God, the cheerfulness, the happiness of God was upon him. Uh, in Acts eleven twenty three, it says that Barnabas witnessed the grace of God, the favor. He saw God's favor happening. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, it says, You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You've gone away from the favor of God. So the word always refers to a favor, whether as an attitude or the result of an attitude. Now we've looked at what the actual word meant briefly in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Now let's look at a definition of the word grace. The word grace refers to two things. First of all, it refers to God's character. So among other things, He is gracious. What kind kind of guy is God? Well, God's not a guy, He's a spirit, He's a being. Well, what kind of spirit or being is He? What kind of, what is that? Well, He's gracious. We can say that about Him. We can say He's holy, He's just, but we can also say He's gracious. And that graciousness motivates Him to create and motivates him to bless. The word grace also means the blessings that he has given us, especially salvation by faith. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 24, Paul writes the following. He says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophet. Meaning, you know, how God is good, how God is right. You know, apart from the law and the prophets, God has demonstrated this to everyone. <coughs> and he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short, excuse me, of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul in essence is saying, you want to know how how wonderful God is? How right He is? How righteous? You want to know how how He is? The law talks about it. The prophets talk about it. But if you really want to know how He is, take a look at what He has done through Jesus Christ. He has saved people based on the process of faith through His grace. If you really want to see how wonderful He is, Observe this. Observe what He has done for sinful sinful man. And God 
has not given us simply salvation. He, he, he could have terminated us. He could have provided salvation only through restitution. You want to be saved? OK, here's a checklist. But because He is kind and joyful, He provides salvation based on our association with Christ. You see how it works? Jesus, He earns He earns our salvation. He earns righteousness. He earns perfection by living a perfect life in a human form. And then He transfers that to us through association because of our faith. And God did this so we wouldn't have to. So grace is not a line. It's not a thermometer. It's not a free ticket. If you want want to imagine something, it is a gift. Imagine a box with a big bow. It is a gift. It is a favor that God in His kindness has done for us. By associating ourselves with Jesus through faith and that faith properly expressed in repentance and baptism and faithful living, we receive the same sin-free sonship, eternal life status that Jesus Christ enjoys. It's a favor because there is no other way we could achieve it. It has to come this way from God. Well, let me give you one or two examples of grace in action. As I said in the lesson, will be yours. The first example is David and Bathsheba. I won't read the story because it's so familiar to us in 2 Samuel. We know the sequence of events. David the king, the army is out at war. He's on the roof of his palace. He observes a beautiful woman who is bathing. He is drawn to her. He brings her to his palace. He seduces her. They commit adultery. She's a married woman. He knows. This is not a mistake. He knows she's the wife of Uriah, one of his captains, one of his military leaders. And yet he seduces her anyways. She becomes pregnant. Then he commits premeditated murder in order to hide the pregnancy. He murders her husband. He lies to the nation over whom God has made. He didn't become king by votes. God made him king and he lies to this nation in order to cover up the affair that he has had. Now by law, by law, He should have been condemned to death. Never mind for the murder. For the adultery he should have been condemned to death. This would have been the proper restitution. And yet we go to 2 Samuel in chapter 12. Nathan the prophet speaks to him. Telling him of his sin. Confronting him with his sin. And what is it that we read in 2 Samuel? It said, then David said to Nathan, after he had been confronted with his sin, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Oh, what's the first passage of scripture that I read today? 1 John, if we confess our sins. It's easy to confess, you know, I was trying to quit smoking and I started smoking again. But hey, to confess, oh, by the way, I committed adultery and premeditated murder. That's a little tougher. You know what I'm saying? David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. You shall not die. A simple statement, repentance, a simple reply, forgiveness. Now, did David suffer because of his sin? Absolutely. He suffered socially and emotionally. The child we know died. There was trouble in his family because of his sin. But God in His grace 
forgave him. Forgave him. David could not give anything to God as restitution for his terrible sins other than dying himself. And even that would not have brought Uriah back, would not have changed his adultery. But because of his kindness, God allowed Christ to make restitution for David's sins so he would be saved spiritually. And because of his kindness, he also allowed David to continue as king. God made a favor for David. And what was it that, and why was it rather that God did that? Because of His grace. Okay, one other example, again, a simple one. Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know about Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about the fact that he is a sinner. Uh, let me get that passage here, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 9 and 10. <clears throat> and he says what? He says, For I am the least of all apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What was Paul's sin? He persecuted Christians. But what was the nature of his sin? He broke up families. He harmed and he jailed innocent people. He participated in the death of Stephen, an innocent and virtuous and faithful man. Many people suffered at his hands and may have still been in jail or separated when he was converted. Certainly nothing could be given in compensation. You didn't see Paul going around trying to get the people he put in jail to try to get them out of jail. They were in jail. The families that were broken were broken. Stephen was dead. How many others were killed? We, we don't know. What could Paul give to God in exchange for his sins? Not all of his mission work and suffering could bring Stephen back from the dead. Paul understood that he was saved and that he was useful only because God did him the favor of charging all of his sins to Jesus Christ so that he, Paul, could go on living. Brothers and sisters, that's what grace is. When you don't have a chance, when you don't have an excuse, when there's no way you can make payment, God steps in and makes payment for you through Jesus Christ. And what He asks you and I to do is to continue trusting in that payment all the days of your life and not in yourselves and not in your goodness, but in His goodness. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, Paul says the following, he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Paul gives a vivid image of the working of grace on our behalf when he describes how God nails our debts our sins to the cross so that Christ can make restitution for them by His death. So when we are worried about our salvation, 
because through the influence of Satan, certainly not of Christ, because through the influence of Satan, we are dwelling on the past sins and we are dwelling on past failure or we are focused on our present weaknesses and situations or we're thinking and worrying about future temptations and our ability or inability to deal with these things. Remember the image of the cross with our perfect Lord on it and all of our debts for sin securely nailed to that cross and feel the relief that comes with that assurance. While I close out this lesson, and I'll do so with a prayer, not something I normally do, but I think it's apropos here. I want you to think of your worst sin. I mean your worst one, and only you know what that is. The one that causes you the greatest worry, the greatest pain, the greatest fear. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye, I want you to picture that sin as a bill or an invoice. And I want you to go in in your mind's eye to the cross of Christ and take a hammer and a nail. And I want you to nail it to the cross and I want you to leave it there for Jesus to make restitution for you. Whatever that sin is, allow Him to make the restitution for you once and for all, and then walk away. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we recognize that only you are God. There is no other. How foolish are those who seek after and worship gods that are no God at all. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ. We are grateful that you have revealed the great gift that you've given to us through him and through his cross. At this time, Father, as each of us goes to that cross and nails to it our worst sin, fear, failure, Father, we offer thanksgiving that the blood of Christ, that sacrifice given long ago, makes restitution, makes payment for us once and for all. And help us, Heavenly Father, to walk away from that sin, never to repeat it, and Father, also never to worry about it ever again. Such is the power of the cross. Please hear our prayer as we offer it. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who need God's grace right now because you have not yet expressed your faith in repentance and baptism, The water awaits. The church is gathered to witness your confession. Please don't hesitate to come for ministry should you need it as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement.